Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. It is time for a Tech Stuff classic episode. This episode is actually a continuation of last week's classic episode. This one published on September 17th, 2014. It is titled The History of Area 51, Part 2. So if you haven't listened to last week's classic episode, you should probably do that first. Area 51 is... <laughs> it, it feels it feels uh, like it's ironic to say this. A famous secret facility... <laughs> And so we kind of go through more about how Area 51's history unfolded in reality, uh, really focusing on the actual documented events that occurred at and around Area 51. Hope you enjoy. The way history works is we like to think of it as there's a beginning, middle and end of each thing. And then the mm. next thing has a beginning, middle and end when really everything is overlapping everything else. Yeah, it's uh, that's that's exactly right. And I'm, I'm glad you said that. I was thinking about that earlier this week. If you've ever looked up historical characters who who lived in the same time period. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Yeah. And it can get really confusing really fast. Right. Right. That's but, the, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to communicate how complex history is because uh, we work really well understanding narratives. Right. Mm-hmm. But when you when you weave in so many narratives that becomes like the ultimate Quentin Tarantino film you can get lost. Yeah, but you are uh, an explainer extraordinaire. How about that? <laughs> so so I, I think that you can easily guide us through some stuff that might be might be a little confusing if you get it all at once, but take us through point by point, because I'll be honest with you, man, we're getting to my favorite part of the story. Yeah, here's here's where things get a little weird. <laughs> um, so we had talked about the A-12 that had started uh, the first A-12 arrived uh, at Area 51 in 1962 and wouldn't really be tested until the following year. That's when pilots trained by the CIA uh, or pilots who had joined the CIA began to test these these aircraft. At that same time, all the way back in 1962, you had a project that ended up being called the D-21 uh, that 21, by the way, where did that number come from? Well, they had the A-12, and they figured having like an A-12 and a D-12 would be really confusing, so they just <laughs> they just transposed those numbers. So you had the A-12 and the D-21. This is, when you realize how capricious the naming systems are. Oh, yeah. It's just, you eventually like, ah, you know, I always thought those letters and numbers really had special designations. Mm, not all the time. Oh, here's an idea. Jonathan. Yeah. If we, if we end up ever doing top secret government work. Yeah. Um, I, I hope that you and I can both throw our names in the hat to be the people who make up the code names. Right. That'd be fantastic. And yeah, and, and ultimately people will fear us because they know that if they if they do not please us, we will uh, give them the worst code names. Yeah. 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 Uh, also, uh, going back to it. Sorry for that. Uh, it's called the D21 instead of the A12. And we know they transpose numbers to avoid. Uh, to avoid too much similarity. Yeah. But what's this D21 about? So this is this is where things are, are pretty amazing. And the D21 was an unmanned vehicle. It was meant to be a spy plane that would not require a human pilot behind the controls. I mean, the, there would be a pilot controlling it, but they'd be controlling it remotely 
on the ground. Mm-hmm. So we are talking about uh, it's not an autonomous vehicle. I don't want to go so far as to say it's like some sort of robotic super thing that happened no, back in 1962. No. Yeah. But we're talking about a remote controlled aerial vehicle that was essentially a jet. I mean, it was, it was not like it was uh, that much smaller than some of the other aircraft we're talking about. It wasn't it wasn't like the size of a drone you might go and get one of those little quadcopters. Right. It was significantly larger than that. Yeah. Uh, it was amazing to me uh, that it was this early. Now, the reasons behind developing it make a lot of sense, because if you have a manned vehicle, then clearly you have a human life at risk whenever that vehicle's in operation. Even if, uh, you know, first we have to consider the fact that flying is can be dangerous. Flying a spy plane in particular can be dangerous because the design may mean that it's difficult for you to have it take off or land uh, safely, even if there's no enemy uh, mm-hmm. interference whatsoever during the mission, right? Yeah, and if you have to conduct evasive maneuvers, then there's not really a nice way to say it. You're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, I mean, the, the we had already mentioned in the previous episode that the U-2 plane is notoriously difficult to fly. So just with that alone, if you were able to have an unmanned version where you could get that same sort of reconnaissance ability, mm-hmm. but you don't put a pilot's life in danger, that's good. But on top of that, there's another reason that's a, that goes back to safety, but it's more about the safety of the country and not the pilot. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which means that if you have one of these aircraft and it's unmanned and it's shot down, there's no pilot for the 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 folks who shot down the aircraft. There's no pilot for them to capture and interrogate. So they're not going to get any other information apart from the actual workings of whatever the device was. So they might see that, you know, what kind of engine you're using or whatever, what sort of technology made it work. But they're not going to have a person that they can say, all right, how many other operatives are in the mm. area? Where did you fly from? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that also, I mean, it's not completely, um, it's not just something that's in concern for the pilot's well-being. Yeah. Uh, there, it's also a national security issue, which, you know, it's not pleasant to talk about, but it's certainly something they had to keep in mind. Right. And... At this point, 1962, they're developing this early 1960s, uh, the USSR already knows about the U-2. Yes. And they're on the lookout for these uh, vehicles. I almost say creatures, but they're on the lookout <laughs> for these these planes. Absolutely. And so this one in particular was uh, was an, an ambitious project. It wasn't just an unmanned drone, which already, like, I always think of the quadcopters. I, it's just yeah. because the quadcopters is such a, a popular consumer drone right now and it's also kind of the design that we're seeing for stuff like uh, the proposed amazon delivery drones this was this was a a ramjet engine drone we're talking about a supersonic vehicle it's not meant to travel at speeds lower than that in fact you couldn't have this take off from a regular landing strip uh, you know or or a runway you had Mm -hmm. this mounted to a separate vehicle like an a12 the A-12 would travel and start to reach supersonic speeds. And from that point, you would then launch the D-21, which would already be traveling at a super speed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a sonic, supersonic speed, and it would just go from there. So this meant that they had a pretty risky launch sequence. I mean, it, it meant you already had an aircraft that was manned mm-hmm. that had to be traveling at this incredible speed before you even launched the unmanned vehicle. Uh, during the test, they, the drones would actually land slash crash, uh, usually <laughs> on a nearby mountain. 
mm-hmm. uh, near Groom Lake during the actual tests. And so to retrieve it, they would send out another aircraft, uh, usually, I guess, a helicopter, because it had to have some hovering capabilities. And they had right. para-jumpers, but the jumpers wouldn't parachute. What they would do is they would lower down on lines from the aircraft, hook the drone. You know, it had some, you know, they would attach the line to the drone in some way. Mm-hmm. And then they would essentially tow the drones back to the facility so that you just didn't have these unmanned vehicles crashed on the side of mountains, which I'm sure would fuel even more speculation if they had been found yeah. by civilians. Yeah. Or, uh, God forbid, a, a rival government. Yeah. That yeah. was the big concern. Exactly. Because, yeah. yeah. So, so they were a cool idea, but it, like I said, it was really dangerous and kind of impractical. There's a high rate of attrition for these vehicles yeah. just because, I mean, think about it. We just named four big ifs in the takeoff. If the A-12 survives, yeah. if the pilot's cool, if it reaches the, you know, if it reaches the speed sufficient to deploy, right. and then if it deploys successfully. Yeah, and unfortunately, there was uh, an accident in 1966. It was a catastrophic failure. The, uh, the drone, which I believe was top-mounted onto an A-12, uh, ended up tilting downwards instead of upwards when it took off and cut the plane in half. Now, the two pilots uh, inside that plane, at, at this point, the, the A-12 was over the Pacific Ocean. It had flown out over the coast of California. The two pilots aboard the A-12 were able to eject successfully. However, one of the two tragically got caught up in his parachute line and drowned in the ocean. The other one had been uh, rescued successfully. And the story is that Kelly Johnson, we talked about him in the first episode about mm-hmm. Area 51. He's the guy from Lockheed who very much was the the head of development at Area 51. Yeah. He's the guy who designed the U-2 plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Kelly Johnson was so horrified at this accident. I mean, he really personally took it very, very hard that he reportedly shut down the project and then returned the project funding to the Air Force and the CIA. Which is sort of unheard of in the world of contracting. Yeah, that, I, I had heard that the phrase I read was emotionally and impulsively returned the funding. Ah, <sighs> uh, yes. So, I, I mean, it was clear that he truly cared about the people who were working for mm-hmm. him. So, um, and that's something I think that's also important to remember is that we often in these stories we depersonalize, dehumanize the folks who are involved in it because right. so much secrecy is there. We don't really know that much about the people involved, but these are people, right? right. And I mean, they're probably friends. They hang out. They probably eat together. Things like you would do with your friends. Yeah. So it's it's good to have this this touchstone to just remind ourselves mm. that while we're talking about this and while it lends itself to the whole discussion of shadowy government projects, right. ultimately... We're not talking about these giant uh, organizations that are somehow sentient on their own and acting without direction. They're actual people behind. Yeah, not some faceless octopus. Uh, but no, this... that's that's the S four facility, not Area Fifty One. <laughs> right, uh, faceless octopus lake. Look it up. Yeah, uh, no, the uh, that got a little Lovecraft. <laughs> it did. Lovecraftian. That's uh, fair. So. In 1967, a yep. big thing happens, right? Because uh, the the mission that we have always been trying to avoid in the United States at this time is to never have an aircraft captured. Right. But conversely, 
we want to capture aircraft, right? And in fact, we were able to do that. The very first MiG-21 plane arrived at Groom Lake. So that's a Soviet aircraft. This is then the the era of the uh, USSR. Um, you know, I I grew up in the 80s, so I grew up when the USSR was still a thing. And uh, even at that point, even well, maybe especially in the 80s, something like the thought of a MiG-21 being in U.S. hands was a big, big deal because it meant that we could see what our our opponent in the Cold War was capable of. You could see mm-hmm. what the military capabilities of this aircraft were. And it meant that the Area 51 became a testing ground, not just for developing technology here in the United States, but also for foreign technology so that we could really understand what the capabilities were and therefore design our stuff mm-hmm. to meet and exceed those capabilities. So it becomes kind of this this game of uh, they get one square ahead, then we have to jump two squares ahead. And, and what are they able to do and what can't they do? Mm-hmm. And we're continually reverse engineering. Right. So with the arrival of Soviet aircraft at the Groom Lake facility, because this MiG would not be the only one, there would be other Soviet aircraft that would join it uh, throughout the years, the the pilots began to have a new name for the restricted air, airspace, which in our last episode, you may remember we talked about being the Groom Box or just the box. Mm-hmm. Now it's called Red Square, <laughs> because now it is the spa- the one place in the United States where you might see Soviet aircraft flying overhead. And again, that starts to fuel a lot of uh, conspiracy theories because you'd see a jet that doesn't look like anything you would have seen here in the U.S. And you see it fly overhead and you wonder, what the heck was that thing? And right. and that starts to, you know, you start to fill in the blanks as much yeah. as you can. And if you're a veteran, then you say, uh, wait a second, <laughs> like, is, this, is, is that a Soviet plane? You, you go back to your to your uh, your house and you sit down at your typewriter and you type up the first draft of Red Dawn. I knew it. Yeah, I was wondering <laughs> which one of us would reach that first. But, of course, with this, they immediately begin uh retooling and working on new iterations of stealth craft, right? Right. So their earlier their earlier plan had been reduce radar footprint, but mainly go go so fast that people can't shoot you down. Right. Which, you know, it's a pretty simple plan, but it can be really effective. Uh, however, it can mean also that the aircraft itself is really dangerous. So they start looking at other ways of creating stealth technology. And engineers uh, over at Lockheed start to develop something called Have Blue which was a stealth aircraft, and it was a proof-of-concept aircraft. It wasn't meant to be uh, a full-production vehicle. Only two have-blue aircraft were ever made, and they started as kind of a... It ended up being a predecessor to the F-117 Nighthawk, which has another name that Mm -hmm. became famous in the early 90s. Uh, That would be the Stealth Fighter. Mm -hmm. So this is the... Even though it was not really a fighter... By the way, right, just it, the stealth craft. It was meant to. It was meant. It was an air-to-ground combat mm-hmm. vehicle, not a, an air-to-air vehicle, which is what you would typically call a fighter versus uh, what the stealth, what the Nighthawk actually was. Mm-hmm. So, this is the one that, if you look at the pictures, it has all those crazy, funky angles on it that are meant to deflect radar, so that uh, the returning radar signals don't go back to the receiving station, mm-hmm. which means that the receiving station doesn't get an accurate representation of where the aircraft is. Right. They they get something, but it's not anything you can concretely trace and hopefully, in theory, not something you can shoot at. Right. Right. That's the whole point of it. So the Have Blue aircraft uh, is 
that that predecessor. And so a lot of stealth technology was pioneered at Area 51, especially in the testing phase, because, mm-hmm. again, a lot of this stuff would end up being built at Lockheed's other uh, facilities and then transported over to Area 51 for testing. We'll be back with more about the history of Area 51 in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break. Now, we're going to skip ahead quite a bit. Uh, That was the 77 with the Have Blue aircraft. In 82, you have Tacit Blue. Which which sounds like a Jaeger from the Pacific Rim. It does. It does. Tacit Blue. Come on, let's go fight the kaiju. Um, It's a stealth aircraft that was developed by Northrop. So this one was not a Lockheed aircraft. It was a Northrop aircraft. And that's also tested at Groom Lake. Only one was ever built, and it was retired in 1985. So from 82 to 85, this thing existed. Now, we didn't know about it until 96. So this thing had been out of commission for more than a decade before the government said, oh, by the way, yeah, we had this thing. It was a, a forerunner of the stealth technology that we use today. It's called Tacit Blue. And guys... You know, I, this is an audio podcast, which in some ways is great because it means you can listen to it whenever you're doing anything like jogging or driving and you're not missing it out on anything. Mm-hmm. But it also means that we can't do it justice by saying this thing looks weird. You're just going to have to Google it. Go Google Tacit Blue and take a look at this aircraft because it does not look like other aircraft. It just it's very oddly designed and shaped. Uh, so it certainly can tell you that the experiments in stealth technology were, uh, they went in all sorts of directions. You're looking at it right now, aren't you? Yeah, I'm pulling it up. It's, I just wanted it's to a little check funky, out isn't it? Yeah, it looks like uh, if you've seen a sci-fi film made in the 70s about how crazy the 2000s are going to be, yeah. this is a plane they would fly. You could see that plane flying overhead during Clockwork Orange. Oh, yeah, good call. With all the white, uh, the mm-hmm. white furniture that's in that, yeah. So in 1984, uh, Area 51, the Groom Lake facility, mm-hmm. petitions Congress for an additional 89,000 acres of land. Uh, meanwhile, you've got armed guards who patrol the area, essentially patrolling that additional 89,000 acres, turning people away, even though it wouldn't be till 1987 that the request would actually be approved by Congress. So technically, they were kind of acting like the land was theirs right. before it officially had become theirs. And you might wonder, well, why were they asking for all this land? I mean, besides being able to expand outward for testing purposes, part of it was that Area 51 by the 80s was starting to become one of those things that people were getting more and more interested in. Right, exactly, because at this time, we see uh, some of the what will later become the the big known conspiracy theories about Area 51 or about Groom Lake, we see these taking root, root because there are now people who are able to say, well, I heard some rumors, yeah. I live nearby, I drove out there, and sure enough, somebody showed up, uh, and they'll say, I don't know, was it the United Nations or, or yeah. was it the U.S. government? And they and they drove me away. Right. And so now it begins to look like a real thing. And you still don't know exactly what's going on. Yeah. And there were a couple of uh, of points like natural um, hills, natural ledges mm-hmm. that were not too far from the facility that originally were not 
were not within that that border. Right. So you could crawl up there. Yeah. If you hiked out there, which would be quite a hike anyway, but because, you know, and you'd have to be pretty well equipped to do it. But you could, in theory, go and hike out at one of these little points of interest, set up a, a, a telescope or binoculars and maybe not get a real good idea of what was going on, but at least see that there's activity going on. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're there toward dusk. And you're looking out. I mean, if you're looking out in the daytime, it's hard anyway, because you get a lot of distortion from the heat because sure. it's out in the desert. Right. But at nighttime, if you're out there looking at it and, and everything's lit up, you could you could see that stuff is going on. You might even see aircraft taking off and landing, although, you know, you might not have a real good look at what they how they're shaped. Right. But it was one of those things that became a concern. And so while they didn't have official ownership of that land, they were discouraging people from being there. And by they, I mean uh, uh, some folks in camouflage. We'll talk about them in the mythology <laughs> yeah, episode. I hope Cause, so. Because they have they have a reputation. Like they're called the camo dudes. <laughs> we'll we'll talk about that. And it's not just not just a couple. There's actually quite a few of them. That's so, our teaser for part three. That's yeah. It's our teaser for part three. Exactly. So uh, some citizens also point out that it's not strictly legal for them to be told to leave land that doesn't belong to the facility. You know, mm-hmm. it's like. This land doesn't belong to you, so therefore, what what authority do you have to tell me to leave this place? Um, which that would end up fueling the the facility really petitioning to get access to this this right. land. And and you know, realistically, if somebody were to go to uh, court or to local law enforcement and say, "Hey, what's going on here?" There is no chance that it would go anywhere. And the those suspicions this is very interesting those suspicions and those concerns were finally verified in 1988 yeah so all through this time the government is still saying there's nothing out there mm-hmm. or that they cannot comment on it or that it's a weather station that anything other than what it actually is right and internally at the same time they're telling each other we have to keep security at the maximum level the most unreasonable level because people cannot find out about this and if we slip at all someone will yeah and then lives national security Mm -hmm. everything's at stake so that included telling companies that operated satellites hey this this area of nevada you can't photograph that Mm -hmm. you cannot image that and Either they would prevent companies from imaging that whole area of Nevada, or if those images were gathered, they would demand to have them censored so that the facility itself would not show up on satellite photography, which worked fine until 1988 when a Soviet satellite flew overhead and took images of Area 51. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing that the CIA finds a little frustrating. They do not have authority over the Soviet Union. If they did, their jobs would be so much easier during this time. Yeah. (laughs) But because the Soviets ended up flying a satellite overhead, taking images, it meant that the cat was out of the bag. Mm -hmm. So those images would end up being published in an article for Popular Science, which was the first time that most people got a real look and uh, granted a far overhead look of what Area 51 actually looks like. You even had a few people try and sneak some photos here and there from a great distance. But mm-hmm. one thing, if you're really far out and you're taking a picture of a facility that's way the heck out there, you have no sense of scale. 
You have no real idea of what, you know, you just see a bunch of bumps and you're like, yeah, there's clearly something there, but I don't have any feel for what it is. Mm-hmm. This gave you an idea of what the actual layout was. You could see hangars, you could see where the housing units were, you could see the, um, the, the, the runways. Right. So it actually showed what the general layout was. Now, granted, that's not good enough for some people. We'll talk about that in the mythology one too. <laughs> right. There's a lot of people saying, well, what do you not see? So now though, as you, as you said, uh, the Pandora box is open. The yeah. cat is out of the bag. And this is the beginning of a, well, depending on what you, what perspective you're looking at this from, this is either a watershed moment or a disastrous moment because now we see, uh, people who are not Soviets start to go public. Yeah. Yeah. In this case, uh, it's a story that, that involves tragedy. Mm-hmm. So in 1989, there was an Area 51 employee named Robert Frost who passed away. And he wasn't the only one. There were other there was another employee who passed away and several who reported uh, having serious health issues because what they had uh, their story was that what they had to do was deal with um, uh, various pieces of equipment and mm-hmm. fuel and things like that and destroy them by incinerate incinerating them by essentially burning them in a pile and right. then sh- sifting through all of that pile, burning anything that was left over, because it, the smallest trace could give someone an indication of what was going on at the facility. So they couldn't mm. keep anything. They couldn't they couldn't send anything out to be destroyed. They had to destroy it all on site. Well, a lot of those materials were toxic. And even if they weren't toxic before you set them on fire, they became toxic once they were burning so it meant that a lot of these employees were exposed to toxic elements and they apparently, according to the allegations laid by the former employees and, and their, you know, their former spouses who, who right. lost their spouses as that part of this. Right. Mrs. Frost in this case. Yeah. So they have at least alleged that the workers were not given access to appropriate gear that would protect them from the toxicity. Mm-hmm. That in fact, they were essentially told, we don't have anything for you. This has to be burned. Burn it. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, they ended up grouping together and filing a lawsuit against the government. And they said, you know, this is uh, unconscionable that this happened, that these, these conditions existed. And they sought damages against the government. Well, the government's response was that because of the nature of what goes on at this facility, they could not go forward with this um, this lawsuit because it would it would mean revealing things that were state secrets that could endanger national security. Mm -hmm. And the judges have agreed with this and dismissed cases on the basis that pursuing such a case would be a danger to national security, which has led critics to point out, and I think rightfully so, that this gives the government a get out of jail free card, a a get out of accountability free card. Sure. If you are able to claim that whatever you did, you did in the name of national security and that having to defend yourself would put that security at risk and that means you are no longer accountable, that's a terrible precedent. Yeah, it's it's dangerous. And also on the other side, there is a legitimate concern because I, I think this is a big misstep on Uncle Sam's part because... Let's just construct a speculative situation here. How did these people 
end up getting exposed to these toxic chemicals. They said they did not have informed consent, essentially. Does that tie into the need-to-know stuff? Were they concerned that if they said what these chemicals are and their toxicity, this would somehow get back to a foreign power? Yeah, and and we've gotten to a point now where everyone knows what is going on at a high level at Area 51, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. We know Area 51 is a testing grounds for new technology, specifically aircraft technology, whether it's manned or unmanned. We mm-hmm. know that. That's a fact. So the question then becomes, well, couldn't we have this case framed in such a way where that where the specifics remain top secret? We don't need to get into the specifics of what the vehicles were. We, right. we just need to uh, address whether or not, in fact, Workers were exposed to toxic conditions without without sufficient resources to right. deal with it. Just the matter of the law. Yeah, that that's really all we have to to focus on. And then these sort of uh, questions could be answered that way. But that's not how it played out. No. And in fact, uh, these things have become even more of a concern in the post 9-11 world mm-hmm. where transparency is even harder to come by in certain fields of government. Yeah. So. You know, you do have to balance out the transparency to the national security. But when it comes down to people's lives and saying, well, you know, this this is this is an example of where we could say the government is is wronging the citizens that it's supposed Mm -hmm. to represent, then that that's a whole other question. Now, it could end up being that the government ends up accommodating Various workers and families in other ways that are very quiet. Sure. That we don't know about. Medical that could happen. Bills, remuneration. But we don't know that, mm-hmm. right? And the, the in, in implications I've seen suggest that that had not happened. But moving on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's, I certainly don't want to be the one who has to make the decisions. So I, right. I, I argue like this is a simple thing, but clearly it's a very complex matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in 1995, Area 51 would acquire two sites. These are two of those sites I had talked about being kind of a problem for Area 51. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was Freedom Ridge and Whitesides Peak. Both of those had been popular spots for people. And by popular, I mean a few times a year. So folks would go out there with binoculars. Right. Um, these have been spots where people would go and try and get a distant look. Yeah, I think the closest you can get to Area 51 right now, and I may even be wrong about this. It might not be that accurate at this point, but I believe it's 26 miles away. Right, so you cannot snatch a photograph. And that's what you mean there is uh, legally, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, if you were to trespass, it would be really stupid. And uh, we're saying, we're we're not saying do it. In fact, uh, Jonathan, both you and I are emphatically saying don't ever go there unless you are specifically invited slash told by right. someone who is in charge there. Right, if you work there... Go ahead and go. <laughs> yeah. It's your job. Right. So, um, yeah, but at any rate, it's it's definitely one of those things where if you are not invited, you do not go there. Mm-hmm. So in 2013, there was a declassified CIA document, actually a group of documents that referred to Area 51 by that very name. Um, again, may have been a mistake that that part hadn't been just blacked out. Right. But Jonathan, this this 2013 thing, which is very recent. Yeah. It happened several several years after another point, uh, a legislative point that I think is very important to underline with uh, some people's favorite president, some people's least favorite president, our boy, saxophonist extraordinaire, William Clinton. Yeah, 
Good old Bill. Uh, so Clinton had signed an act into law that puts Area 51 beyond investigation and legislation to preserve national security, which means there were a lot of different organizations that were trying to get access right. out of out of various concerns. You had people who were concerned for the health of the workers, mm-hmm. like the lawsuits that we had mentioned. There were also environmental concerns, so environmentalists and, and environmental agencies that wanted to make sure that the facility was following appropriate measures to make to make sure it wasn't polluting the area, it wasn't affecting water tables, wasn't affecting mm-hmm. the ecosystem. Uh, because when you hear hear things like they're burning toxic materials, that raises a lot of flags. And Clinton's uh, act essentially said, it doesn't matter. You're not going <laughs> to you're not going to get the clearance to investigate this. So whether something is going on or not, you're never going to know. Mm-hmm. And essentially every president since then has back that up. Right. Because, yeah. again, it's one of those national security issues where you say, all right, I have to make a call. Do I call it on the side of national security, which a lot of people think is kind of a cop out answer? Kind of like, a catch all. Yeah. Like it's a again, like it's a way to just avoid accountability. That's how it can often be perceived. And maybe the truth is that, no, it really is a matter of national security. Mm-hmm. It's just hard to appreciate when you don't know. Right. right. And you the can't old, know, because if you did know, it would no longer be safe. <laughs> and you don't know what you don't know. The old unknown unknown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, we I don't know. I'm pretty I'm pretty firm on what I don't know. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a lot. You're an authority on what you don't yeah, know. Yeah, I could write a book on what but, I don't know. But what you do know, um, what we have we've looked at here so far is that. Um, hopefully we've, we've done a, a pretty bang up job of going through the facts. Yeah. You know enough, I think, to give us a hypothetical or high level look at what it would be like if Jonathan Strickland worked at Groom Lake. And, All right. and, and just Uncle Sam, if you're listening, he doesn't. I do not know, but here, here's kind of what it would sound like according to the, the few accounts that we have that seem credible. Keep in mind, there are a lot of people who have claimed to have worked at Groom Lake at one time or another who may or may not have actually worked at Groom Lake. Right. But let's say that, uh, let's say I, I'm, a, uh, I'm, I'm working there. This is kind of what the, uh, perhaps the, the orientation video would go. It'd be something like that. <laughs> Hi. So you've decided to work at Groom Lake. Welcome to the team. When you turn in on Monday morning at the McCarran Airport in Las Vegas, You'll go straight to a secret area where you'll board a Janet aircraft. Janet is the call sign. It's just a white plane with a red stripe. Then it's just a quick jaunt to the airport over at Area 51. You'll get off the aircraft and go straight to work. Don't look around because all that other stuff is secret. You will work exactly on the projects you've been assigned and on nothing else. In your spare time, maybe you'd like to play some baseball, or perhaps tennis, go for a swim, or visit a wonderful cafeteria. All the amenities you can imagine are available at Area 51. So that would be kind of the, oh, the that beginning. Was great. Hey, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was great. I hope I, I wasn't laughing <laughs> in the mic. But um, but yeah, everything you're saying is, is spot on. Uh, these 737s are... Always called Janet. Yeah, so. it's it's that's the call sign. So mm-hmm. people refer to it as Janet Airlines, but mm-hmm. these are it, that's not an official company name. It's that they contracted seven thirty sevens, 
Uh, if you want to be a flight attendant on one of these, you have to go through the same sort of background check you would if you were to work at Area 51. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, um, you would have to make sure that you got that top secret classification clearance because you were going to come into contact with folks who are working on top secret projects. So yeah. you have to be you, ha- you have to prove that you're trustworthy. It's time for another quick break, but we will be right back with more about the history of Area 51. There are, like I said, some amenities. They have a gym. They've got a movie theater. Mm -hmm. Uh, The pool they use is mostly used for training purposes, for pilots to uh, train for uh, what would happen if they eject over water. Yeah, that makes sense. So things like new flight suits that are designed for uh, high altitude flying. You know, they, they had to make new flight suits because... Pilots were suddenly flying at altitudes that no human had ever gone to before, Mm -hmm. uh, or at least not had gone to for a sustained amount of time. And would probably asphyxiate. Yeah. So they had to they had to say, well, what happens if they have to eject over water? Can they get out? Uh, Is the suit going to weigh them down? And the way they tested is they'd essentially have pilots fall from a great height into a pool while wearing one of those suits. And they tested out that way. So. Um, so probably not going for a pleasure swim. Uh, mm-hmm. Although, from what I understand, some of the uh, some of the people who running who were running the programs actually did have their pilots go for a swim first before going on a um, uh, a mission just to help kind of kind of focus themselves. Right. So it all depends. Uh, the food, like I said, was supposedly really good. Apparently, and I have no idea if this is true, but apparently, if the test flight involved going to some remote location. Like Maine, <laughs> the pilots would sometimes bring back lobsters, and so you would end up being able to have fresh lobster them and caught that morning mm-hmm. in a desert in Nevada. <laughs> but now, of course, for people who are listening to the series, you notice that we've mentioned the early planes were very, very difficult and in some cases impossible to land yeah. to stop over. So it just makes you think. About how far this technology has gone, because it, it makes me yeah. think, where did they land these planes where if you're working on a top secret aircraft, <laughs> where do you land in Maine where you could go pick up some lobster and come back? I mean, I heard yeah. the story, but I just don't know how that worked. And, and how do you give a lobster security clearance? Uh, right. I mean, <laughs> those guys, loose mandibles sink ships. I <laughs> but uh, yeah. and, and also I mentioned that Area 51 has a black budget project, so. There have been several people who have reported that the way they were paid was in cash, mm-hmm. that they were not given a check because a check would mean that it's traceable to a specific organization, whatever that might be, whether it's Lockheed or it's CIA or whatever. Which that that happens in government yeah. agencies. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, you have you have people who collect intelligence who just pour over paperwork, not all spying involves dressing in a tuxedo and betting on black. I mean, some right. spying is pouring over countless documents trying to look for hints at what's really going on underneath. Most spying. In fact, yeah, a, yeah, a great deal. Of course, a lot of it now has been uh, relegated to algorithms, which means sure. that the, the poor clerks don't have to do it anymore. But at any rate, yeah. so you might get paid in cash and you might be told that you, whenever you sign for anything, you have to use an assumed name. Josh Clark. Yeah, that's <laughs> why I sign everything. Now, Josh doesn't realize this, but he co-signed a loan for my house. So um, that's totally not true. Uh, so, yeah, the, the it, it's it, they take their secrecy seriously all mm. the way from the very 
high level. We're talking like all that, that restricted airspace that goes all the way up to space to how they pay the employees. Now, that doesn't say that doesn't mean that everything we've said today is 100 percent accurate for how things work at Area 51 today. Absolutely. Not. Most of the information we have dates from folks who are discussing things that happened back in the 60s or 70s. Uh, because they take the secrecy so seriously and because people are signing over oaths that say they will not under any circumstance share that information, it means that we don't have up-to-date information. Right. Now, I imagine that most of what's going on at Area 51 these days probably involves a lot more unmanned drones. I think that's probably one of the big things that are under development there. Mm -hmm. And it really, since it is an aircraft facility... I imagine that that's mostly what we're seeing. You know, there are a lot of people who suggest that other types of, uh, of technology are under development at Area 51, but that's really not what it's set up to do. Right. Yeah. When you set up a facility like that, there, it goes back to us talking about the specialization of these various aircraft. Yeah. The base is the same. A base has to specialize. It can't be all things to all projects. Right. So for instance, another, an unmanned, uh, space project that's going on now, the X-35B, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to double check while we're talking here. Uh, that is something that goes into space. It requires a platform capable of launching it mm-hmm. in, in into near-Earth orbit. Right. So the so pro- problem would, is, how would you do that? Yeah, right? you wouldn't be able to do that at a facility like Area 51 that doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. And if it did have it, you would... You know, you would have to be further out than 25 miles to not notice. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of the I think a lot of the drones that you'll that would be under development at Area 51 would either be lower altitude drones or they would be like the old D-21 where it was launched from a larger vehicle. Right. Yeah. And we're talking about UAVs at this point. Yeah. The Predator or something. Yeah. Yeah. but the uh which is a name for UAV folks not the not the movie right they that's actually uh area 51 is where they conceived and shot the predator yeah exactly. <laughs> it's also the the a fantastic location for the film independence day uh, <laughs> sorry <laughs> that's okay so we are not done with area 51 yet we have covered the 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 history as much of the real history as is known that we can talk about. Um, there are, of course, a lot more details on all of these stories. And there's some fantastic books that have been written about the subject where people have meticulously researched all the available information and pieced together as much as they could to get as, as close to a full story as you can get without being on the inside. Mm-hmm. But we aren't done there because in our next episode, Ben and I are going to uh, we're going to explore the mythology of Area 51 mm-hmm. and the fact that, you know, in, in pop culture, we think of it as not just a place where spy technology was tested uh, or and is still tested, but a place where otherworldly technology may reside. Right. Yes. And that goes along with some of the some of the very, very strange things that you have probably heard in your own day to day life about Area 51. When we say otherworldly, we don't just mean this dimension. either. Yeah, it could it could be pretty weird. And they, they range from things that you you could say, I can see why people believe that to mm-hmm. how is the, how was this ever an idea that someone had? Uh, there's a pretty, pretty dynamic range there. So I look forward to having that discussion with you, Ben. We're going to, uh, end our recording for today and, and conclude, 
But um, just just out of curiosity, before we close the door on the the as much of the real story of Area 51 as we can know, what do you think? What do you think about what are your thoughts when you hear Area 51? Ah, OK. Yeah. Thank you. The. The gist of Area 51, we've we've explored uh, some of the effects that secrecy have on yeah. people's the way they frame questions and the way they address an area. Um, I think it's clear that there is a grain of truth to some of the beliefs, unfounded as they may be, about Area 51. We do know that there is secret technology being tested there. Yep, absolutely right. We know that it is. Um, it's it's not unreasonable to assume that it is several years ahead of what we would consider current publicly known pioneering research. Yep. And I would add to that that um, when we when we say that there is a grain of truth to these things, what we're talking about more is similar to a piece of sand getting inside of a seashell building a pearl. Right. There's so much embellishment that occurs that at some point people will consciously dismiss the actual explanation where there's so much excitement about the embellishment and people fall in love with these stories that it can be difficult at times for them to admit when we say, oh, we have found the grain of sand called Project Mogul or something like right. that. And so a as a result, we we run into what really is a, a new mythology that perpetuates itself. And honestly, the government is not helping with that. At all. But then to be fair, I think the yeah. government has a vested interest in letting that go as long as it needs to go, because mm -hmm. if that means that the attention is put on something that is not real, mm -hmm. while they can work on very real but very secret projects, it benefits, right? Like yeah. there's there's not a whole lot of incentive to say you are completely wrong and here's why when mm -hmm. they could say uh, we you know we have no comment on that. Which gives them the benefit of saying we didn't we didn't confirm it. Right. We didn't really deny it strongly either. But at the same time, we can continue our work on the very secret stuff that we actually need to develop. Mm -hmm. um, I personally think that such a such a facility like Area 51 in a world where spying is uh, a, a necessary evil, that it's absolutely the the perfect <laughs> the perfect facility for that, because it has stood the test of time. I mean, you know, the idea of something that was built in the 50s still maintaining this level of mystique, mm -hmm. you know, five more than five decades later is pretty incredible. So it's it's pretty it, it's a fascinating subject to me. I love the idea of uh, these engineers working to meet seemingly unachievable goals. I mean, the idea yeah. the idea of creating an aircraft that could defy radar was uh, was a real eye opener. And, you know, you got to keep in mind that the United States had that technology years before we ever had any public unveiling of it. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty exciting stuff. And uh, I, I love the idea of it. I do think that the operation of it lends itself to some potential misuses of power. I really do think that this this use of uh, national security to kind of um, distance yourself from mm -hmm. any culpability is a little distasteful. Well, yeah. I mean, national security is the way I like to think of it often in the post 9-11 world. National security has been become the equivalent of hitting base 
in the great game of tag that yeah. is national discourse. Yeah. So uh, one one other thing that I wanted to ask you, and and again, as always, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, I wanted to ask you, mm-hmm. do you think that people should be people who? Let me phrase this correctly. Beep. I wanted to ask you, what do you think about the scrutiny regarding Area 51 or Groom Lake? Because it's pretty well known right now. Yeah. So I think that the question is, what else is out there? And my question is, do you think that there are other lesser known places where um, not the bulk of the work, but other work is taking place? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, Area 51 is really a testing ground. So if you're talking about actual research and development to mm-hmm. the point of before you even built something where you're just figuring out prototypes, there are facilities all over the United States that are involved in that in some way or another, like Lockheed uh, has has areas that they, they have famously disguised from the air so that you couldn't <laughs> see what was going on or where where even a building was. But they're not the only one by a long shot. I mean, there's there are companies and organizations um, as well as as actual military facilities that are just as secretive as Area 51 is, but perhaps don't have the same level of mystique. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're talking about aircraft and you're seeing weird things fly overhead, that definitely brings some questions to mind. If it's a facility that you can't really see and all the stuff they do is ground related It's not going to gain that same level of attention. And that wraps up this classic episode, The History of Area 51, Part 2. Next week, we're going to go into some of the more (laughs) creative theories and hypotheses about what was going on at Area 51. So make sure you tune into that. And if you have suggestions for topics I should cover in current Tech Stuff episodes, reach out to me. The best way to do that is over on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 